0: roxo media house welcome back to 42 folks jw wilson your host with my co-host brenton Payne to the uh, far left the man in the middle is a man by the name of dr keith cerny the president and ceo of the fort worth symphony orchestra uh we are brought to you by captex bank our friends over at captex brenton thank you mike thomas Thanks, as mike. always <laughs> uh we got a good one today this guy here does quite a bit of things he's been quite a bit of place quite a bit of places as well uh thank you for joining us keith we're honored to have you here in our, in our presence
1: I'm glad to be here
0: so before we get into the fort worth symphony specifically you you come from a long ways away and been a lot of places like i said uh you were playing music at an early
1: age when did music find you so i actually grew up uh, and taught myself how to sing listening to my parents' Beatles records. That's pretty much the only records we had in the house. And it's kind of fun, actually, because tonight with the Fort Worth Symphony, we have a Beatles tribute concert. So it was bringing back some of those memories. <laughs> but I had a music teacher in school suggest suggested I audition for the San Francisco Boys Chorus, which I did and got in and had a chance to sing with the, the symphony and the opera in San Francisco. And then also uh, was able to start taking piano lessons. And within a couple of years after starting on piano lessons, I... Played my first piano concerto with the Berkeley Youth Orchestra.
0: So Are you better at one than the other? Would you
1: say singing versus piano? So I have sung and I've studied voice because I've coached opera singers, but my primary instrument is piano and I'm also a conductor. Very nice. Did your parents make you take lessons?
2: Like, did, did they see something in you when you were singing these Beatles tunes? They're like, my
1: goodness, you have
2: something right there. We well, and
1: usually it was the exact opposite. So <laughs> I begged my parents to buy me a piano since the age of seven and they said, nah, you'll just quit, Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of unusual now that I've been a parent. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, that was their view. But after I got into the boys' course and started progressing through the ranks there, my mom said, well, maybe this kid's worth buying a piano. And she bought me a piano, and I found my own music teacher. And just from the day I started taking lessons, was playing two hours a day uh, without any kind of prompting just because I loved it so much. What kind of piano? Oh, this was an old upright. I don't even remember. It was, with. With ivory keys that were sort of falling off. I mean, it was playable, but it wasn't stay in tune. Special. A kind of, yeah, reasonably, oh, yeah, re- good, good. reasonably in tune. Yeah, in San Francisco, that's where you grew up. I actually grew up in Berkeley. My father okay. was a professor at UC Berkeley, and uh, that so we lived in Berkeley. What kind of professor? He was a professor of chemistry and nuclear physics. Oh wow! So
0: so education has always been pretty paramount in your family growing up, and even to this day. Correct. V-
1: very much. Yeah, I was. Uh, we. My parents took education very seriously, and my father was a professor. His father had been a professor. My mother had an EDD. I mean, it was a it was a very academic family, and I enjoyed that side of my background as well. But the the music really took hold at about age ten. Did you did you think you maybe go into the same thing and just teach music uh, like throughout your life? Actually, in my I wanted to be a concert pianist. then when I got into my twenties, I wanted to be an opera coach and conductor and was mm. gearing up to that before I decided to focus on arts administration. So I I knew I wanted to be a performer as opposed to a teacher or an academic okay. in music. So. Okay. Yeah.
0: You ended up at Cal Berkeley where you're from, obviously, and which is part of the story. But any what are your you have some fond memories of the period of childhood up to Cal Berkeley, high schoolish? What what are some of the memories you that you have that you could share?
1: Well, I remember just doing an enormous amount of music, which I Really loved. I played this concerto I mentioned. I studied intensively. I played in the California Bach Festival. I sang with San Francisco Symphony and San Francisco Opera as a boy soprano. Played a lot with the Berkeley Contemporary Chamber Players. Uh, so I, I was really heavily, heavily immersed in music as a, as a teen. Fair. And performing. And, perfor- and performing. Yeah, performance. Yeah, performance as well. And that's really what I, what I knew I loved to do. Mm-hmm. Incredible. So Cal Berkeley hits you.
0: Yeah, you're studying there. Um, this is a pretty wild time at Cal Berkeley. I think a lot of things are happening there,
1: right? Including the big play.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I was there that day.
1: Please tell us. So that was. This is the famous Stanford play where the band went on the field and Cal managed to win. Uh, so this is Britain. You oh might oh have my to gosh. Have to Help Britain. I
2: thought you were going to talk about some uh, kind of like. Um, <laughs> some kind of 60s thing or i don't know
0: keith I, britain has yeah. no idea what we're talking no, about zero idea i'm thinking so, about
2: like berkeley is just like a calm you know like a hippie <laughs> thing or something like that and then you say your dad with chemistry i'm thinking of another guest we had on psychedelic i'm going crazy places
1: well there was some of that too i have yeah. to say having been at berkeley but um no i was referring specifically to the big play and is mm-hmm. a big TCU football guy JW, Now you'll know exactly what play yes. I mean, right? Maybe you should tell the audience. You of course, well, I believe I Stanford can.
0: was ahead in the last play of the game. It was just the most crazy. The band ran out on the field, Britain, just so you're aware. It's probably one of the most famous plays in the history of college football. I think I've seen Cal Berkeley lateral it several times and ran through the crowd, through the through the band to to score and win. It was it was ridiculous. Actually, right. were you
1: there? I was there at that day for the game. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's oh, uh, and everyone gosh. had thought that uh, Berkeley would. You know, would would right. lose, and so the, the the play was called. There were too many men on the field. The men being the Stanford band, but of course Berkeley declined the penalty because they just won the game. And they used this very uh, clever rugby style play where they kept doing reverse laterals up yeah. the field. Yeah, it's one of the. It's you can find it on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. So yes. I was at Berkeley there. I think that was. One uh, of those that's great. Big, that was one of the big moments. Are you
0: a fan of sports? Do you follow any sports? Just since we're on that topic. A, a
1: little bit, a little not, bit, not, not a lot. Not terribly. I, I find it takes most of my time just keeping tabs of what musicians are up to. But I have sports.
0: I yeah. have been to Cal Berkeley several times just on visits with family and stuff. Uh, there's one place that I we, we always try to find it, and it's Founders Rock. Are you familiar with this rock? It's basically where the the, the school was initiated, like in 1860 or right. something. And I don't know why I even bring this up, but I don't know if you knew what a Founders Rock was, if you ever saw it, but it's where the school was started. and It's right. basically it's hidden by trees and some right. shrubs and stuff. And it's a, tr- it's a chore to actually find the rock. I don't know if you were familiar. Did you find it? We never found it. We were obviously searching, and this is
1: back before the internet was very helpful, it's years and years <laughs> ago, so... Interesting. I mean, it's ringing a vague bell, but right. I never saw it. There, there is a nuclear power plant that's used under or a react test student reactor under the engineering building. So I know that's still there. They let students run a You're, reactor. This, well, this is from years ago. It's mothballed now, but apparently there is. If, if you know the right basement to go down to, there wow. is a. You're a clearing up reactor. a lot of
2: loose ends for <laughs> yes. me with him <laughs> yes. discovering the nuclear reactor and yes. being around that rather than the rock. Indeed. <laughs>
0: So, from Cal Berkeley, you ended up in London on a Fulbright Scholarship, or Fulbright Fellowship. Excuse me, that's right.
1: What, what was that like? Fulbright Fellows Fellowship, and then an Alfred Hertz Memorial Fellowship from Berkeley. I spent four years in London studying music and performing. I studied at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Also attended the Opera Accompanying Course at the English National Opera, mm-hmm. which was uh, very exciting to have the chance to work with them and, and studied with some really tremendous conductors and a really fabulous pianist so nice. I spent four years doing that but primarily gearing up to getting a job as a opera company in a german opera house and taking intensive german and doing all those things and then when i was about 24 i thought no i think i'm going to focus on the arts administration side uh, i was engaged at the time and my now wife was willing to go to germany and and you know launch that particular adventure but i decided arts management probably was going to be the, the long-term play for how me. long in germany were you well, I I didn't live there. I was gearing up to audition, but oh, okay. it's it's interesting. Uh, Italy has the reputation for opera, but if you look at where the jobs are, there are far far more jobs in Austria and Germany mm-hmm. than there are in Italy. Sure, and, it's you, also funny what marriage can do to a musician's dreams, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I please mean, tell what? us, Britain. What? <laughs> My wife has always been very supportive. Mine so. as
2: well, but it's it's a hard way to raise a family, right? It, it is a hard way to raise a family, mm-hmm.
0: indeed. Uh, that led you to some place called Harvard. You know, we call TCU the Harvard of the South, <laughs> as you're probably aware, but that led you to Harvard Business School, correct?
1: That's right. So, after I came back from London, I actually worked for a couple of years in a big at eight accounting firm, which really dates me. But in those days, there were eight. So, I worked for a couple of years in tax and corporate finance at Touche Ross, a company. And... Because my thought was before I went to business school, I really wanted to at least have mm-hmm. some experience in in business. And so did that for a couple of years and yeah, went to enjoyable to time? Yeah, I learned an incredible amount. I was there a couple of years and it's it's really extraordinary as I think back in my entire career how much I rely on those two years. Really? Yeah. Just work everything from working on auditors, knowing how to read financial statements, just feeling really comfortable with with financials. Yeah, I really learned more than I realized at the time.
2: It's amazing how many musicians are numerically oriented or have a kind of a math. It's odd. You would think that it would be more of the writing side and the creative side. But you find a lot of musicians that have um, a real numbers background or a real, you know, mathematical and and computer science. Is there what do you think the reason for that is or you think it's. Easy. Well, it,
1: it's not universal. I certainly know some musicians who are really much more focused on music and the verbal side. But yeah, there are quite, quite a few musicians who do both, including myself, because my undergraduate degrees were in music and physics. Mm. And uh, so a lot of mathematics. And then I wound up doing a PhD later in, in my career through the Open University in the UK in option pricing theory, which is heavy math. So for yeah. my whole career, I've enjoyed the interplay between the math side and and the music side. Do
2: you look at music in a kind of almost a numerical format or methodology? Like, you know, does it translate into you like
1: that? I think for a certain kind of repertoire, it's it's very helpful. Right now, I'm preparing the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion, which I'll be performing on our chamber music series this fall with our wonderful keyboardist Buddy Bray and mm-hmm. our percussion players. And that particular piece, yeah, it's almost like a switch. Swiss watch. I mean, there's so many rhythmic elements built into it and it takes just a real precise approach to practicing. Mm-hmm. So, so for some kind of repertoire, it has an absolutely almost numerical kind of feel. Big romantic piano concerto, not so much, but certainly mm-hmm. some more contemporary repertoire, absolutely. And over the years, I've really enjoyed learning and performing a lot of contemporary repertoire. So I think that, that helps there. Yeah,
0: yeah. I almost get lost in the shuffle when music talk takes over. Not being a musician. Well, Uh,
2: what's interesting is you said contemporary, more kind of numbers oriented. mm -hmm. And you think about how technology is taking us into a, I mean, computers are based on numbers, right? Like, so it's almost like, is there something behind that, right? You know, but from
0: where we're going, we're just moving into the numbers more, it seems like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any notable memories from the time at Harvard? Anything uh, notable worth we could mention?
1: So I did a big field study with uh, a classmate named, Andrew Bartmiss for a very famous professor, Stephen Wheelwright, on helping Kodak improve its manufacturing and talking about some of the perils of offshoring. So bear in mind, this was published in 1991, and it's still being referenced in the literature. So that's pretty cool. Uh, I get pings every actually week or two from ResearchGate saying, someone's requested a copy of your article. So we think we were ahead of the times in the sense that we were uh, pointed out that if you move your manufacturing overseas, it can cost you a lot more money than you think. And that mm-hmm. we we sort of come full circle from say the 90s when lots of companies were offshoring to different parts of Asia, and then a lot of companies now are right. bringing it back. Bring, bringing it back. So. And this is Kodak, though, right? This was this was Kodak uh, business images sy- business imaging systems division, mm-hmm. and we we wrote a Harvard case about it and published this article, and so that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'd say that You're was the highlight f- academically of the. And then days.
0: from there, you go back to the UK to Open University,
1: where we're- you got. And that was a part-time thing. I went back to the UK actually to be an associate with McKinsey and company, the consulting sure. firm. And I did the PhD in my, in my spare time. Uh, and yeah, that was a part-time. Program. People hard, No, that's so well, actually the way I did it, I, I think back to that a lot. So my wife and I didn't have kids quite yet. Uh, but I took a lot of taxis because my clients were all over London and yeah, I worked very, very long hours at, at McKinsey like everyone does. And, But what I did, though, is I dedicated one taxi ride per day to work on my PhD. And, you know, with the passage of time and just my laptop in there, running my simulations, writing my stuff, and that allowed me to generate enough material that I could then actually finish it when we moved to the
2: And who says you're a numbers guy, breaking it down to one taxi ride a day? I'm sure you had the amount of time, too, in a non-Uber or, you know, cell phone shows you how long it's going to take you world.
1: Well, this, I was writing this in the early 90s, and cell phones were you know, about the size of a, a building brick, right? <laughs> They're these huge, heavy things. Yeah, yeah. So there really was not sort of broadly used commercial cell phones yet. So in, a, in a, taxis, I'd either be writing my presentations or I'd be, be working on this. But I found that worked really well. And, and actually, that's how I tend to organize my life still. So like I mentioned, I'm preparing this, this Bartok piece for our Chamber Music series. I have to be very just meticulous with my practice time because my day job keeps me pretty busy. So I, every time I sit down at the piano, I really have to know what I'm trying to accomplish mm-hmm. in that particular hour. Right? I mean, it's it's great fun to sort of sit at the piano and, and be leisurely about it. But I just don't have that kind of time at the yeah, moment. So certainly. I have to be very, very focused about what I'm trying to get out of yeah.
0: it. So we can fast forward a little bit in your career because you've done quite a few things. But obviously, I think we're... we're our point here is get to the Fort Worth Symphony, but you had to stop down at the, for the San Francisco Opera for three or four years. You were the executive director, of the CFO, of the San Francisco Opera. So you're now you're now in the upper echelon of the of the of the musical. Uh, and this is a big one too, the San Francisco Opera. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar, but that in itself is a substantial deal. Uh, how, how was that for you?
1: Well, that was fantastic experience. I had already been a full partner at Accenture for four years, and was looking to make my move into arts administration. And they had uh, a vacancy at the number two level with the chief operating officer and chief financial officer. Mm-hmm. And so I was delighted to have that offer and work for them for three years.
0: And then you went to another spot where we were, we were talking before you got here. Um, when I used to try to learn the guitar, I wanted to play the guitar. I go to Tablature for, for a company called Sheets Music Plus. Uh, you know, idiots that can't play go there for the easy way to play a song on the guitar. Ah, uh, come to find out, you were running this company for the period of two, three years, correct?
1: That, that's right. I also was CEO of Sheet Music Plus and worked very closely with the founder and the venture capitalists who had were were gearing it up for sale. And it actually has since been sold. My two years there, I spent really virtually all my time working on uh, modernizing the the data infrastructure. So we we actually built a whole new data center at 365 Main. From the ground up, and we're able to compress the data center from essentially a big floor in a basement and office building to a rack and a half. Uh, oh, wow. So that was. Well, us non-musicians, thank two. you
2: very much for the help there. Because you know, is look, that are those sheets being used somewhere still? Sorry, Chita, No. Yeah, that
1: business they they sold it to one of the big music publishers. I don't remember which one, but uh, yeah, the business was very successful. We had when I was there about a million titles you could have been, buy online, and it was an interesting example of how the internet is very powerful because we could compete against much larger organizations, say on Amazon, because Amazon wanted to sell the high volume music that everybody wants to buy. So Pachelbel's Canon or mm-hmm. you know, fake books for Beatles or, or those kinds of things. But we could be on the long tail of the distribution and sell things that people only bought once or twice a year all over the world and still be able to make money on that. And mm-hmm. so I didn't found this business, so Nick Babchuk did. It was a very clever business and very successful. That niche market, if you the, will. The niche yeah. market. And it's, it's really would make a textbook example of how a, a business can compete against companies, you know, 1,000, 10,000 times their size if they're focused on just the right kind of niche mm-hmm. and
0: there and there you go on to the uh this general director and ceo of the dallas opera for right. eight years for nearly eight years there yeah so which led you f- further on to the calgary opera uh it's one of the largest operas in the whole world I'm, I'm familiar with these guys why what is it about the opera business obviously your musical background i believe is that answer but you, you seem to have a thing for the operas and you, do, you obviously have successful operas in that. What, what's going on there?
1: So one of the things I enjoy about opera is it blends together the orchestral playing, the singing, and also adds all the theatrical elements mm-hmm. on stage. And in fact, in our work together, Robert Spano and I, the Four Symphony's music director, we both enjoy that theatrical side on some of our productions. Mm-hmm. And we've been introducing more of those kinds of elements in what we do, whether it's through Evenings of Wagner or ballet, or using projections, so these are all elements that we've, we're yeah. bringing into the symphonic experience. And what about Canada?
2: Because we've got, you know, like the Van Cliburn. There's a lot of Canada arts and and that humanities, stuff, and then we're getting that here. How? What do you
1: think the reason for that is? Canada is a very vibrant art scene, and Calgary in particular is home to the Honens International Piano Competition and. I'll, Alberta Ballet. Uh, so, of course, here in Fort Worth, we have the very, very famous Clyburn International Piano Competition. Honens would say they're of that same, you know, exalted level from a piano competition point mm-hmm. of view. So, there's a lot of interest in the arts in Canada. One of the reasons is that a typical Canadian arts organization is funded about a third by the three levels of government, mm-hmm. whereas apart from the pandemic years in the U.S. environment, I mean, it it's typically maybe 1% comes from government okay. sources. So that's one difference, and it definitely makes it easier to know you have that solid base of support.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you learning along these these director lines things that work, don't work, which obviously led you to the Fort Worth Symphony, but are you learning the the methods in which they build audiences, build funds, all the things that you now utilize at the symphony? Is it fair to say that's where all this came from?
1: Yes, I've been uh, working in arts management either as a consultant or line exec for about 25 years and although I'll say one of the fun things about what I do is I have to learn new things every day, I've certainly had a lot of experience. Right. Now you seem and- like quite the
0: learned learned man, I
1: have to guess based <laughs> on your resume, so it it's interesting what what trends are new what trends are are different um, or I should say what trends are new, what are, what are the same. So 25 years ago, people were complaining about audiences disappearing. And people have been actually complaining about that since the time of Mozart. So that's not to say we don't have to work hard to develop new audiences, Mm because we do. But that same theme has been around for 200 years, more probably. Uh, What really has been new since I worked with the Forward Symphony, of course, is managing a symphony through a global pandemic. And Mm -hmm. that forced us just to rethink absolutely everything absolutely. that we do uh, mm-hmm. to get through that period of time. And we did it very successfully and are now working to pull out. But it, it really required just a total rethink,
0: yep.
1: sort of a disruptor mentality to the business, although in this case, the disruptor was coming from the outside. And I know
0: he'll have some questions further on the pandemic. But the, so we arrived at the Fort Worth Symphony where, you, where you're president and CEO now. So you're in Fort Worth, Texas. I know you're happy to be here. I've, I've known you for quite some time now. Uh, tell us what it means, or first, let maybe start at the beginning what exactly is is a symphony what 's the purpose of a symphony in the, in the world of music? Just so the people who don 't understand quite what 's going on
1: Sure. so we have about uh, sixty five musicians in our core orchestra, and our our service our our mission really is around community service and that has different kinds of elements of providing great orchestral playing of different kinds. Maybe a summer festival. We have a very, very large education program. And pre pandemic, we used to reach about 200,000 people a year. That broke down very roughly as about 65,000 in our education program, 35,000 through our summer festival, and then the rest through our symphonic and pops programming. Historically, Fort Worth Symphony has had one of the largest education programs in the country. And that predates me by a long time. That's great work by my predecessors but it's an important part of what we do. Sure. We bring all those elements together. We're really here to be of the community, but also serve the community. Absolutely. Is it something that
2: makes a city, you know, uh, better than another city by oh, we have a symphony orchestra, right? Like, is there like some echelon that it reaches that for, I mean, obviously
1: larger cities have these, but what's your take on that? So the... It's incredibly important for cities to have the arts in my view. And in fact, I've done some work in my consulting days, non-music consulting days on corporate relocations. And so one of the things that really draws or companies to cities is the quality of life. Do they have sports teams? What are they? Do they have the also performing arts and museums? Mm -hmm. And this is a really central part of civic life. And I think many, many cities of all different sizes recognize that Mm -hmm. and you know you take a smaller community like uh, wichita falls that i've done some work in you know they're very proud of all the things they do there and they're constantly striving to bring more more exhibits to their museum more music more kinds of uh, entertainment and quality of life to their residents and that's a city of you know about a hundred thousand when you get to a very large city like fort worth or dallas it's all about that that cultural excitement and mm-hmm. that's really important i think for any city to have really really of any size is there competitive nature to like us with dallas like look what
2: we, we do this beatles deal and like we're better here like kind of out out showing the other
1: so we really think of ourselves as being one of two top tier symphonies in the the metroplex so metroplex now has about 8 million people and that's plenty big to support two international calibers of symphonies. So we don't really think of it as head-to-head competition. We we do strive to be the best we can be artistically. And with the appointment of our new music director, Robert Spano, we've really made a big step forward. He just brings such a wealth of experience and knowledge and contacts and mm-hmm. musicians that he wants to work with. So that's really elevated what we do considerably. Yeah, nice.
0: I've always believed the symphony, and these are my words, but it's one of the grandest, most complex uh, methods of performing music is that fair to say I mean, there's more goes into a symphony than it, probably anything musically I know there's a lot of practice but it's the amount of members you mentioned 65 there's just so much going on the conducting the practicing all the choosing of the pieces all the things that go into it makes it got to be the most complex performance there is right
1: it, it's a very complicated business and budget size is deceptive in the sense that our budget is much smaller than some of the largest orchestras in the US, which might have budgets of 100 million or more, but often we do 80 or more percent of the many performances. So one of our challenges is how do we, with a staff of 28 people, produce 200 concerts a year? And the answer is we have to be incredibly efficient to be able to make that happen. Uh, Symphonies are very complex organizations. We have a work group of musicians that we need to keep working well together. Our, our work group is unionized. Uh, most symphonies are. Um, that ad- adds other elements of we need to make sure we're following the contract very precisely. And, and everybody is really working well right. together. And, and then so-
2: did those performers then have other, they don't have like full time job, they're musicians, but do they get to go to other places and perform and things like that?
1: So our musicians are on a 46-week contract, so they have six weeks of preparation time in the summer, but in that time they are able to go work in other festivals if they choose. Many of them teach. Uh, they teach at TCU, they mm-hmm. teach at UNT, so they'll, they'll teach at universities, they'll teach privately, they'll do gigs on the side. And that's something that we encourage. Mm-hmm. We set the schedule each week, Typically, at least a month in advance, although we give advance warning. And beyond that, how they organize their preparation time and other activities mm-hmm. is is very much up to them. But it, it's ex- expected that that they will do that. Average
2: salary of a symphonic cellist. Let's say. Uh, I mean, do some instruments uh, get paid more than others?
1: So we pay more to the principals than we do to section players. So in a in a section like cellos, the the principal will earn more than than the section player okay. and. We do everything we can for them. Uh, you know, it's a tough, tough economic environment sure. at the moment. So we're average salary, just ballpark, ballpark. I mean, it doesn't even have to be the cellist. We won't even so those, those are consist- consistent. I mean, the I don't have the exact numbers to, to mine, but the, the section musicians will earn, I think this year's contract is in the high 50s before doubling fees or overtime or some of those other, sure. other kinds of things. Sure. And then principals will earn typically 25% more than that, something like that. But
2: still in this day and age, that's a real love for music. If you're going and doing this kind of right. work, right? right. Sure. I mean, you're doing it for the music aspect, not for the going to vacation on
1: Hawaii this summer. Right? <laughs> I mean, we are very fortunate to have, Many dedicated musicians that uh, you know they, they focused their whole life, often since a very young age, on this, and you know, we're just thrilled they want to be part of the Fort Worth community and be mm-hmm. part of the Fort Worth Symphony.
0: And Since we're on money, Keith, could you tell us about how much? What does it cost to run a symphony per year? Is is it? You mentioned a hundred million dollars for some of these world class symphonic
1: Our budget this year is about fifteen, 15 million dollars. The the biggest driver of the cost structure of a symphony is how many musicians they have in the core and what they pay mm-hmm. core members. Um, so.
0: Sure. And that $15 million college budget, wh- where is that money coming from? So people understand how money is made.
1: So we have earned revenue, which is split roughly evenly between ticket sales and some of our partnerships with organizations like Fort Worth Opera and Texas mm-hmm. Ballet Theater, the Clyburn when they're having their competition, PAFW, who manages Bass Hall, engages us for their education programs. So we have earned revenue that does not come directly from ticket sales. And that produces a, a good chunk of what we do. We typically have an endowment draw, which covers about 10% of our operating expenses. And then the remaining, which is you know, always more than 50%, is from fundraising. So right?
0: fundraising is a big part of most symphony, if not all symphonies. Right.
1: I mean, fundraising is an extraordinarily important part of mm-hmm. what we do, and in fact, having worked, as you mentioned earlier, JW and Opera for quite a few years, I you mean know, opera companies have been planning for years to for a world where tickets only cover ten to fifteen percent of the budget. Mm-hmm. I mean many aren't there yet, but every year typically the that pie chart shifts so that ticket sales. Become a lower part of the percentage a low percentage of the total, and the fundraising becomes is it natural. still
0: true keith that since since the I think you made a comment about Mozart that people are getting people to come back to the symphony or come to the symphony in general is that you said that's still a thing what are, what are we what are you doing what is the symphony doing to entice people to come to the symphony
1: if that 's the right word sure we we think a lot about what is what is going to sell when we program, especially in our pops pop special series. We're dramatically expanding our movies because a lot of symphonies will do movies with full orchestra, right. and that sells really well. We had big success with that with Star Wars last fall, our first John ever Williams. Star Wars mm-hmm. program. Uh, in the upcoming season, the twenty three twenty four, we'll be doing our first ever Harry Potter film. Typically, mm-hmm. these sell very well. Explain
0: that real quick. With the like Harry Potter film, you're showing the film on a screen in the sym in, in Bass Hall with the symphony playing along. At- the, all the musical pieces, right. correct?
1: So, this, this is licensed through the owner, and in Star Wars' case, it's through Disney. So, we negotiate with Disney on what the fee will be for if we do three performances, what those three performances are. And then there's a screen above the orchestra. The orchestra sits on stage. And the conductor then has various tools to keep the playing synchronized, or I should say they're conducting synchronized with the movie. And very this could popular be stuff. tracks or other methods. These are, these are very popular. These pop series he's very popular so we're doing more with that because every dollar of margin we can generate on that mm-hmm. means a dollar less that we Certainly. have to fundraise we also had a big success in the last couple of years with some video game projects and mm-hmm. we're doing more of those and then in 2324 we're also doing our first immersive art experience with orchestra oh nice to to tap into the interest in immersive van gogh and and so forth so we hope those will will sell really well and
2: bring the younger audience i was thinking about it you know with technology i can pull up a sample of any orchestra i mean it's not the same but this is what you're competing against this is this instantaneous mm-hmm. uh i don't have to go somewhere get dressed up go sit down there's nothing that matches the live like symphonic right. experience right right but um explaining that to my fourteen or fifteen-year-old who's just scrolling, and it's—it's mm-hmm. just I don't understand how you you bridge that gap. Um,
0: it's got to be. Britain. A huge he has challenge. four. He has four boys, so he probably knows a thing or two about that.
1: <laughs> well, we we had them all start play instruments, so that that definitely helps. But getting people to come to a theater, yes, take some take some attention, sure. and we find these movies, video games, immersive experiences, we think are very strong. Tribute bands are very strong. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I do chuckle about pretty often is that all the bands that were you know, hot and new when I was in high school and college, right, were cutting edge. And now they're the focus of our tribute series. Sure, Um, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I remember Freddie Mercury, right, with Queen, was for its time very edgy, and he certainly was a very edgy person. And now it's this very tame, you know, come... Come for an evening entertainment. And it's, you know, it's the same with the Eagles, the same with the Beatles, any sure. of these, these kind of things. Well, when
2: I was thinking, when you're talking about doing the, the films, um, I was thinking we used to do this thing in college where we would, on the second roar of the lion, play The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd uh, while watching um, The Wizard of Oz. You could do that. I mean, we it could. Would, I yeah. would come and see that. I would, I would just just a little idea there, and uh, I think JW would join me at that for sure.
0: Indeed. <laughs> <The, laughs> before I forget to ask you, I know we were talking about the music now, but the, you mentioned the union, the, the symphony is unionized. I think in this part of the world, some people around here probably have a bad interpretation of what a union is. That's, that's a bigger thing up in the Northeast, I think. Uh, Why is a union important for the symphony and and how does that, how does that go for you in, in, in negotiations?
1: So we work very closely with the American Federation of Musicians at a local and national level. And they were an absolutely fabulous partner through the pandemic because we had to come up with work rules that kept everyone safe that the musicians were comfortable with so we could perform mm-hmm. for live audiences. In fact, the Fort Worth Symphony was one of the first symphonies in the, the US to resume live performances. We were performing to live audiences with live musicians in September of 2020. Mm-hmm. And that was that was a really big deal. So the we worked very closely with the players committee that represents the musicians and artistic advisory committee and also the union. The Agreement is 70, 80 pages long, and every paragraph there is for a reason, so that we can take care of our people and also produce a great artistic result. Uh, I'm particularly pleased with the close collaboration that we have here in, in Fort Worth between the the administrative staff and the musicians. And in fact, looking at my past jobs, this has always been a priority for me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Dallas, it wasn't San Francisco, it wasn't Calgary. I think those relationships are, are incredibly yes, incredibly important.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. Let's uh, kind of flip gears now back to you and the music. Could you tell us, an audience, what does what your daily life, your daily j- job look like for someone who's running a symphony?
1: Well, I, I often start the day by getting up and, Playing the piano because okay. I'm always working on some new piece of music or for some sort of side project and it it does get me in in the mood for. Does Juniper appreciate this? Well, it de- depends. So I have a, a lovely grand piano that we've owned for years, but I also have a high end keyboard okay. with headphones so that if she's heard the same piece <laughs> a lot, she gets a she gets a break. So I I do alternate between. Those do you two. have one at the office too? I don't have one at the office just because yeah. during the work day. I'd, it would be hard to sort of find the concentrated time given just all the things that, that happened. But I've, I have one, you know, the grand downstairs. See the board. And, <laughs> the board's
2: like, well, he's practicing it for his thing. I mean, he's not doing the work of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you do that. You start. So,
1: so I do that. And we have, it, one of the things I think is distinctive about running a, a symphony is it's a very much a real-time operation and stuff happens all the time. We do plan several years ahead. In fact, I'm working right now with our wonderful music director. and planning the 24-25 season. And we had various calls and conferences uh, about that earlier. Uh, But a lot of what we do is, I mean, this week's a great example. How do we readjust the rehearsal schedule because of all the weather issues? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that we have enough time to get the, the Beatles show on? How is that affecting ticket sales, how can we encourage people to come? Because in fact, by tonight, hopefully everything will be pretty much back to normal. So it's a very real-time aspect to that. And I work very closely with just this amazing team that I've been able to put in place with our chief marketing officer, head of development, and uh, head of operations, head of human resources, which is a very important job for us, and then of course our CFO. So So I have a lot of of meetings and a lot of discussions. One of the sides of the job that I most enjoy is working with our music director of programming. And also because Bass Hall is so close to our offices, like this afternoon, I can pop over, listen to a bit of rehearsal, make sure I feel comfortable. Everything's coming together for tonight mm-hmm. and then go back to mm-hmm. you know more of the, the sort of planning and administrative side of things.
0: What about the other side? What are some struggles that you ha-
1: are constantly on in your purview? So raising money. I mean, the reality of any arts organization in the U.S. is that we have to raise an enormous amount of Mm -hmm. money. And working with my board and development teams, I added up once, I've worked on raising well over $100 million in my time in Texas alone for operations and endowment and other kinds of capital projects. So the raising money side is with me, I mean, literally 24-7, 365. Mm -hmm. I had one year in a a 20-year line exec career in arts management. I had one year where my development director and I had raised so much money in advance that we had a year where, you know, we knew where the, exactly where the money was coming from. And nice. we focused on producing, uh, you know, great works on stage. And they didn't have that pressure, but mm-hmm. that was once. Um, and I think typically if you talk to any arts CEO, they're going to say, say this the same thing. I mean, it's just... We're very dependent on fundraising. We need to make sure we have the relationships Mm -hmm. in place that we can talk to people about the giving. We need to have an artistic product that we're really proud of. And I also find having a very tight and lean operation impresses a lot of potential donors to be more generous. They really wanna know that if they give us any amount of money, from a small amount to a very large amount, that we're gonna use every dollar really really carefully.
0: I love hearing that. And that's kind of my next question, is why people obviously give to the symphony but why should people give to the symphony what what is in it for them and why do maybe why do people give to the symphony more than why should they why do they this guy's a harvard
2: phd that's one reason right there just what he just said i mean <laughs> i think that you can't argue with that you know so many times with non sorry this question was for you but, <laughs> right, but you, jump in. That's but I'm, <laughs> I'm promoting this because i think so many times with nonprofits the compassion is there it's in you you wake up and play the piano but then you get to the office and it's like, I have no business. You know, a lot of the folks just they don't have the business sense. They don't know how to to mm-hmm. do that. And you're very unique in the sense that you you went and did the business thing. And I can only imagine what that conversation with your now wife was like, because my grandfather was a musician and had the same with my grandmother of, OK, you're going to be a performing musician. But what are you going to do in the other time? And if you look at your life, it took a different path then. So. I commend you for for that, but sorry, I didn't mean to answer that's, for well, you there.
1: That's that's fine. <laughs> the 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 business side is incredibly important, and working with our uh, head of operations, who I hired last summer, uh, John Clapp, who was a professional bassoonist, I mean, in a, in, a, in orchestras, and then became uh, head of operations. I mean, we we now understand our margins on everything in a way that we didn't before, mm-hmm. and when we. Pro- promote symphonic works. I mean, everyone knows we have to fundraise for that, right? And they they accept it. I mean, we're never going to have a a program of a big mall or symphony that's going to pay for itself for ticket sales. It's just not going to happen here or anywhere else. But when we're doing a a pop show, we want to make something that's high-quality entertainment that draws people, and we we make margin. We never make a profit, but we, Mm -hmm. we want to make margin on that. And even on something like these tribute bands, there's often multiple variants or video games, there's multiple options. So we have Mm -hmm. to really understand, okay, well, this one will sell a little bit better, but their costs of what they're going to expect is actually higher. So when we look at that net margin, we might go for something that doesn't sell quite as well, but is actually considerably less expensive. Mm -hmm. So building all that into our our thought process is, is super important. From a fundraising point of view, what I've found Various things get people excited. Uh, education is is always something people are really interested in, bringing on the next generation and and serving, you know, un- underserved communities. That's one area. Uh, projects that combine unique elements, for example, so if we're doing a symphonic program and we're partnering with a a ballet where the orchestra and the dance company share the stage, that's the kind of project that gets people intrigued because they don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting someone to underwrite a sort of bread and butter. Soloist with the orchestra, I mean, happens sometimes. And if they're a big name, okay, we may be able to do that. But generally, people are looking for something where there's it, it has a unique aspect. Uh, this spring, we're going to be presenting Haydn's Creation with Robert Conducting. And we've engaged this very famous visual designer, projection designer named Elaine J. McCarthy, who's done a lot of work on Broadway. And she's doing these really extraordinary immersive visual designs yeah. um, for the soloists and chorus and in that particular case the orchestra will be in the pit but these are the kind of projects that personally I found have been you know easier to to fundraise for